I was wondering how we were going to start this. Start the podcast. Start the podcast. And I had a thought. Go on. I thought that you sit where you're sitting Mm -hmm. and I will jump off the top rope (laughs) that we have installed in the Irish Times podcast studio just to celebrate the wondrousness of our girl Becky Lynch making it to the top of the game. And then producer Declan will come in and hit one of us with a chair. Well, seeing as I won't be sitting on the chair. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, it works. I like it. <laughs> uh, of course, what you're talking about is Becky Lynch winning at WrestleMania last night. Yes, indeed. Or in the early hours of the morning. Indeed. She uh, A unification belt, Mal. She put the Raw Women's <laughs> Championship and the SmackDown Women's Championship uh, belts together. Why do, you, why do you laugh when I say unification belt? Look, you gotta, you got to unite the clans. Yeah. This is sport. Okay, so let, let us explain here. Let us explain. This is the Out of Time podcast. I'm Malachi Clarkin and you're Pat Nugent. And we're talking about Becky Lynch from Baldoyle mm-hmm. in North Dublin, uh, who was profiled and interviewed in the Irish Times uh, magazine on the weekend by Amy O'Connor, uh, who has made it to the top of the world of the WWE. And it's a fantastic achievement for her. Yeah. Being, as she is, somebody who wants to make it to the top of her profession. And she beat out Ronda Rousey, ex-UFC star, and uh, Charlotte Flair, who is Ric Flair's daughter. You see, this is where we get into value judgments. Go on. She beat. Mm. You know, I was listening to, uh, uh, and and this is is a failing on my part. Uh, I caught the very top of Ryan Tuberty's radio show this morning as we were coming into work. And um, the way he talked about Becky Lynch, uh, he said... She beat eight-time world champion. Uh, I don't know whether he's talking about Rousey or Rousey, Flair. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, he was essentially talking... I'm, I'm not 100% sure that he knew that this is not actually a competition. Yeah. I definitely... He's not alone there. There are plenty of people who will try to... If he, as soon as you start having this conversation, they'll mm. go oh, you, you should be showing these people more respect. These are incredible athletes and these are sports people at the top of their game. And what do you know? Now, I have no problem whatsoever hailing Becky Lynch's athletic abilities. Yeah. Her endeavours. They are fantastic. Uh, but it isn't a sport. Go on. Why is it not a sport? Would you, but it's not a sport. It's it's scripted drama. Like it's it's you know it's it's the wire. Like it's you know like we may as well sit here and 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 laud you know Aidan Gillen for uh, being a key part of the last series of Game of Thrones. Mm. I, I I actually have a slightly different uh, touchstone for it. I don't think it's it's like Game of Thrones. I don't think it's like scripted drama. It makes me think of pantomimes. You know the whole. He's behind you because you literally have like audience interaction and... Game of Thrones is pantomimes with dragons. Well, fair enough, yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) But it is, it's just, it is all all scripted and it's performed brilliantly in front of a live audience. They're essentially live action stunt people. The most extraordinary thing about the WWE, I always find, when when it does kind of bubble into the consciousness like this, is uh, how genuinely seriously it is taken in the States. How, you know, it is put forward as, you know, something for people to get really into. But don't they get into it with a slightly arched eyebrow? Like, I don't think you go along to those things with a, you know, a a sign 
and cheering wildly without knowing that this is scripted drama that you're watching. So what? But what's the attraction? Why? Why do so many people go to it? Why, why do so many people make... go to theatre? Yeah, but not this many. P- people don't pay pay per view. Uh, the latest uh, death of a salesman yes, coming from yeah. Broadway, you know, like WrestleMania is 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 as big a pay per view thing as the UFC is in the states. Yeah. Well, you see, Death of a Salesman didn't have uh, like what happened at Raw when the same three women got in a fight and the police had to get involved and they were arrested. Ronda Rousey stole a police car and crashed it into another police car. Like, if Death of a Salesman had that, maybe you could sell it on pay-per-view, yeah, you know? Yeah, tough shit, Arthur Miller. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to finish this with a quote. As I said, she was uh, profiled by the, the fantastic Amy O'Connor in uh, the magazine on the weekend. And in a very Irish Times way, there's a, uh, on the piece on the website, I'm going to read a quote from one of our subscribers to finish it off. Okay. Good for her to make as much money as she can out of it. But it's sad that wrestling and fighting are the cultural fair offered to Irish children. <laughs> <laughs> Which only goes to show that you can do whatever you like in life. But there's an Irish Times tut-tutter waiting for you around the corner. <laughs> 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 That's the one and only uh, mention of WrestleMania uh, on the added time. Well, you, you wouldn't know who could, where it could go from here. Mm. I'm sure it you know, could be McGregor's next life. It and we will true, definitely actually, never yeah. talk about it again. <laughs> uh, to much more staid fare is what we will be dealing with uh, on the show today. We will be talking later on to Philip Reid about uh, the Augusta Masters, which is coming up this week. But the arena of fun for us this week, Pat, uh, will be down uh, in the Dáil of all places. Uh, where fun goes to die. Where fun goes to die. <laughs> uh, I was down there last Wednesday and so was uh, Emmett Malone. How are you, Emmett? Hi, Mal. Uh, enjoyed it last week? Ah, I wouldn't miss it. Wouldn't miss it all, all really. You know me. I mean, I, 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 you know what? My, you only see me at the ones I'm working at, you know? But uh, but when you're in here writing those gaff features, I'm up at some old doll committee or other. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, haven't got my writing instructions for the week, but I presume I will be there on Wednesday again to see uh, John Delaney and the, well, who will we see? Indeed? Yeah, we don't know yet. We don't know uh, yet. We don't yeah. know yet. Um, so the original plan seemed to be that the FAI was going to f- uh, send along John and uh, a bunch of staffers. And I think this is kind of normal enough procedure. Uh, you get somebody like a chief executive coming in and then you get, get some backup staff to, to you know, fill mm. in the, the, the detail uh, to the questions and they defer to them on, on, on the odd occasion. Uh, but, um, but, the, uh, but as of Wednesday, I think we discovered that the committee is very specifically... Um, requesting the presence of uh, three members of the board. Mm. Uh, so Eddie Murray, the treasurer, who uh, you would think would have some interesting stuff to say on, on a great deal of what was has gone on over the last while. Uh, Donald Conway, the president. And um, Porg Trainer, the head of the Legal and uh, Corporate Affairs Committee. Um, kind of surprised Michael Cody isn't isn't being asked as well. He's a, he's the secretary of the association. Has been there a very long time. Like mm. like Murray, I think they're both elected around two thousand and four mm. to the board and have held those positions for most, if not all, of that time. So a very very central figure and a very close ally of Delaney's. But uh, but they're the ones where they've asked for. Uh, no confirmation yet. Yeah. Who's going to be sent? Uh, could be the whole lot of them, which it would be an interesting tactic just to. Uh, Fill out the whole room, Indeed, and yeah. uh, and I think that would be quite counterproductive from the politician's point of view. But um, uh, disappointing, I, I have to say, from my own point of view, I think it would have been better had they brought in Delaney and the staffers as originally planned uh, in one go, and brought in the board members completely separately. 
Uh, but we'll see where it goes. Uh, I, I think there's supposed to be word sometime today as to as to who the FAI are intending to send along. It was interesting uh, on Wednesday when the the committee was talking to Sport Ireland and John, John Tracy and Kieran Mulvey and uh, Colin McGinty. Um, we like we we have a bit of uh, experience being down at these things. Uh, I was quite pleasantly surprised by the relative lack of grandstanding. Certainly compared to the last time we were there, from yeah, we got from a bit the towards politicians. the end. Yeah, it started there was well, a wee bit yeah, towards yeah, the yeah, end, yeah. like, but like as things went into the fourth hour, and, yeah. and maybe people's discipline broke down a bit. But uh, I think part of the problem was that the people who hadn't been there originally, so mm. they came in late, well, weren't sure what questions had yeah. been asked, and decided a lot that, of uh, and then a, like a very long speech might uh, might might do instead. But what struck me was that that it it's very important for the, for the committee when they have Delaney there like mm. it's such an opportunity sure. that that we never have as you Absolutely, know work a day yeah. journalists yeah. who yeah. can ask questions it is such an opportunity that for them for anybody to waste it yeah going off grandstanding yeah, I think that would, be terrible. would be a yeah. terrible thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think the thing about people, what people need to understand about the way John Delaney has handled his kind of press and media affairs over the last uh, 10 or 15 years, it, well, maybe that's going back a bit too far, but certainly the last mm. 10, since since the kind of, since things started really to get sticky over the finances, which really coincides mm. with the redevelopment of Lansdowne Road and then the subsequent failure of the 10-year ticket scheme that was supposed to pay for it, um, is that John Delaney makes himself available at very specific occasions, right? And the, and the deal usually is that, you know, it used to be the AGM for a start. There used to be kind of uh, a press briefing after that where you'd get to ask whatever you wanted. That stopped, you know, I can't remember when, around 2015 maybe, you know, 2014, 2015. And then after that, there's kind of various occasions. And and what they do is, to some extent, is they're having like um, a sponsor's gig or something like mm. that, Spa, or announcing uh, sponsorship of five-a-side football <laughs> or some council wants, you know, want, they want a, a bit of a turnout for a council um, announcement on co-funding of regional development officers or some such initiative yeah. you know we've had you know lots of good stuff that yeah, most yeah. of the organisations do in one form or another and it'll be on the thing that John Delaney will be in attendance and you know sometimes it will say that John Delaney will speak sometimes it's left to our imaginations as to uh, as to whether we'll get him or not so people go along and then they ask for uh, interviews and um uh, they get them or they don't get them. And sometimes the sense is that he decides on whether to talk based on who is there, you know, and whether he kind of fancies the lineup mm. of journalists that are going to be asking him questions. And sometimes he starts talking and as soon as the questioning moves on to a topic that he doesn't like, you know, he will either say that it's, um, we're all we're talking about here is the Spar Five yeah, Sides today yeah, yeah. Or we'll have a chance to talk about that sometime down the road. So, for instance, the last time I tried to talk to him was at the UEFA Exco meeting in the Shelburne Hotel uh, in mid-December. It was the day after the draw for the European Championships. And he declined to talk to myself and I think it was Dan McDonald from the Indo were there, I think. And the two of us asked and he declined to talk to us. But he said he'd definitely do something before Christmas. But he didn't do anything before Christmas. Mm. And you've no way of nailing him down on that, you know. Um, So these sort of things happen. And and so, like, for an example, when they were unveiling the logo for the Dublin 2020 um, end of the European Championships, he came over to a mix zone and... um, and started answering questions. And uh, he would, you know, every time somebody would ask a question, he'd be sort of starting to shuffle away and he'd hear enough of the question to realise that he liked it and he'd come back <laughs> and he'd answer the question in full, you know. And a lot of the questions I think that day were about Daily Man Park, it was, which was in its early stages of the, you know, good news phase of the redevelopment. And so he was answering questions about that. But 
as soon as I asked him about the Olympic Council of Ireland, his relationship with Pat Hickey, whether he'd intended to uh, uh, travel to Rio for the Olympics, uh, he just said that the time was up and, and off he went. See you later. And so that's the sort of kind of situation that we're in now. And so exactly, I think the fact is that, you know, you know, I still haven't managed to ask John Delaney really about the, the singing in the pub, about how the FAI mm. managed mm. to threaten The Guardian with legal action, how the, the communications department was, was misleading people about whether it was him, you know, or several other things that I would love to ask John Delaney about in some detail. But, you know, the, the situation never arises because the situations are extremely well controlled. And he walks away. And it's very difficult to just keep saying, at this point, he walked away. Well, what we have is a situation now where these 10 politicians or so, or 10 or a dozen politicians, are really going to have a chance to, in a structured way, ask him questions about issues that he's uncomfortable with, where he's on, on TV, and they're going to have the opportunity to, have, to ask follow-up questions, to explore the issues in some depth. And the option he's going to have is either, the options are, to answer those questions properly, to kind of fudge or kick to touch or try to evade the questions or to just simply decline and say, I'm out of here. And, you know, well, that's going to make interesting viewing. Yeah, so we might pick our way through some of the issues sure. that we would like to see the, the committee raise on Wednesday. The starting point on all this is the 100,000, yeah. uh, which has been described by the FAI now as a bridging loan. Are the committee entitled to ask about this or are they still... No, I think they're entitled asking, to ask about yeah. whatever they want, I think. Like, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not aware of, uh, I, you know, there was a couple of interventions by Fergus O'Dowd, the chair of the committee the other day, to kind of, you know, uh, yeah, uh, around, stop questioning yeah, that, uh, that suggested around legal action, criminality yeah, or, yeah, le- yeah. you know, legal uh, procedure or whatever. Uh, so, you know, I don't think, you know, I don't think they can g- get into suggesting or or hinting at anything like that. But I think they're, as far as I'm aware, they're entitled to ask whatever they want. But does it need to be in relation to public funding to their questions? No, 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 I don't think so. No, I mean, I think that the, uh, what this is, it, you have to remember that this, he is under no compulsion here. Mm-hmm. He has been invited to come in and chat to the members of the committee. He is, you know, we are assuming that he's going to accept that invitation and he's going to go in and chat to them. You know, after that, I don't think, he can do whatever he wants within that, I presume. I'm not an expert on this, but my understanding of it is he could sit there at the start and make some sort of opening statement about I'm only prepared to take questions on A, B and C. But, yeah, well, we'll we'll see what everyone makes of that. Yeah, there's never any real restrictions around these things. Yeah. Like the, like these things, and, and I, that, I mean, that in a lot of ways is, is sometimes the weakness of them. Yeah. Because they can get desperately yeah. unfocused. They can get, you know, somebody can, can filibuster for... Yeah. 15 minutes talking about something sure. that absolutely nobody has any interest yeah. in. And Delaney would be delighted, you know, to lap that up and, and go it, down into talking about his some grass, some club grassroots thing that he did in Dundee yeah. or something like that. Now, I think the limits of their powers mm. uh, to compel people to answer, uh, to extract information, whatever, have been kind of, you know, laid out by the Cairns judgment in, you mm. know, in relation to PAC. And so these... There is no huge amount of power here. But what we are talking about is public perception. There are a lot of people out there who think that, you know, there is a bunch of journalists who are just gunning for John Delaney for no reason. There's this kind of, you know, every time I write a piece, I get, you know, some feedback, primarily from some guy in Tipperary who really get, takes ah, offence. I you get know? plenty from him uh, as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Handwritten. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Long, long cool, letters. Kulbara. Cool yeah, that's him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he writes to other, pe- other people on the staff about me as well, I've found. Yeah, yeah, when, when I stopped replying to him. But, uh, which was just like, I, I was really, if you're listening, it was just a matter of uh, time, you know? Like, <laughs> I, I genuinely got the sense that you had a lot more of it on your hands than me. Um, but, um, but, yeah, you get some feedback about this and there's people accusing you of being, being out to get him irrationally, just a personal grudge, mm. jealousy, whatever it is. 
it is not that. Well, now he's going to have to go before, you know, a committee of the doll who he's done that twice before and got just embarrassingly easy rides. But the sense from the John Tracy thing the other day was, mm. I think that that certainly the sense it was that they kind of got their act together. They were up their game a bit. Yeah. They're aware of the issues involved. They have like last time, one of the major issues was they didn't have nobody really had the kind of depth of knowledge required to ask follow up questions. Mm. So they, they, they'd ask something that was half decent and promising. They'd be deflected with, with an easy answer and they wouldn't quite know where to go with it from there. I think uh, I think that seems to have changed, although. I mean, certainly in Catherine Murphy's questioning towards the end of the session the other day, um, there was very clear hints that she had some sort of mm. I- some inf- inside information about stuff that hasn't really been in the public domain. Um, uh, so it's going to be interesting to see where she goes with that or whether she can go some- somewhere with it. Um, but I think generally speaking, you know, um, there was there was a, a sense amongst the um, amongst the politicians, even if they're not aware of the specifics of, say, the finances, because that's pretty tricky to get at. I mean, you know, one of the quest- one of the suspicions is that several members of the board aren't entirely on top of the finances of the of, mm. of the association uh, and that perhaps thing issues like the 100,000 euro were just handled, you know, between Delaney and very selected members, maybe the treasurer, maybe, you know, one or two others. We just don't know. And that's one of the things we want to get them. But say Ruth Cop- Coppinger certainly seemed to have a handle on the issue of the culture of the organisation. Mm. One of the things that came up with John Tracy the other day was um, was the issue of uh, whistleblowing policies in um, in, in large sports organisations. And, and and I think, disappointingly, the Sports Council, as, on so many, in, uh, as in so many other areas, essentially took a step back for it and exactly, said, it's, yeah. it's really not our responsibility. But uh, but the fact of the matter is here that, to the best of my knowledge, the FAI has no whistleblowing policy. It certainly doesn't have one that's actively res- you know respected by potential whistleblowers. And when you talk to people out there, they are genuinely frightened that your phone... I remember ringing a guy out there about the absolutely most run-of-the-mill issue to do with the FAI Cup. At the time, it's a good few years ago, at the time he was um, he was responsible for kind of administrating the uh, FAI Cup. And I rang him about a game that was being called off when it might be rescheduled for or whatever. But because I couldn't get him on, a, on his landline out in, out in Abbottstown, I rang him on his mobile. And the guy was audibly frightened about my number being on his uh, on his phone and that was that's the culture of uh, that you have out in the FAI yeah. and because if you have something in the paper the next day and they fear that they might be blamed for it then they worry about their you know job security in the organization or how they might be affected by that this is what we're talking about that should not happen in a publicly funded sports organization that's supposed to be run for the benefit of 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 people generally, but it should be a good place to work. It should be a secure place to work and people should be allowed to speak out and give their opinions on that. The appearance of uh, board members other than John Delaney, Mm. um, as you say... Who's not a board member anymore? Well, quite indeed. As you say, it would have been possibly, probably better had they been even further purloined out, had there been a third one just with the... But the the very fact that, that these guys are there, they have questions... The board members. The board members. They have questions to answer too. The board members now. I mean, John Delaney, in 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 one sense, is secondary to all of this now. John Delaney is no longer on the face of it. You know, if we take this at face value, which I'm, I admit, is quite a stretch. But he is no longer the person who's running that organisation. He's not a member of the of the board of directors. So absolutely, the people who should be answering these questions, like first and foremost, really, are. You know the the elected officers of the association and the rest of the board. They are the the treasurer of the association, Eddie Murray, the retired guard from Monaghan, um, a very senior guy, retired guard from Monaghan. Um, 
he has been true uh, treasurer of that association through the most incredible kind of times uh, in terms of the redevelopment of the stadium, the uh, the, the you know the various financial uh, consequences. Certainly of, of, through the time in the association's history when the most money has flowed in and out of it. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But it, but it had been absolutely clear. I mean, if you talk to anyone connected with the association, it's been clear for years that the cash flow situation in there has been an absolute nightmare. That it's been, you know, real kind of hand to mouth stuff to keep the show on the road. Um, the F, the sports council referred to this several times yeah. the other day that they had, they were aware that there were issues with cash flow there. They referred to only ever seeming to question, you know, pose a question in relation to it on one occasion sometime in 2017 when they admitted with hindsight they asked a very specific question, they got a very specific answer and they kind of, you know, were suggesting on that, you know, that they'd essentially been had um, with the, with, with the, the specificity mm. of the answer. Um, but the interesting thing, one of the, actually one of the interesting things that they were saying the other day was that Look, people, it's it's not unusual for sporting bodies to have cash flow issues. That's part of why we're here. Yeah. If they needed a hundred yeah. grand, we're well, on the end of the phone. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. So there's the, so so there's the financial situation itself. Mm. Mm. There's the fact that in the course of the redevelopment of the stadium and the payments, all of that. There were exceptional items which were, you know, never really kind of properly explained. They seem to have paid five million euro to um, a bank in Britain when they were going to take a, they were going to arrange a mortgage, and then that was cancelled because they got a better deal from Danske. Um, there was uh, the the arrangement with um, the termination of the arrangement with IMG, who were supposed to be selling the ten-year tickets, which has never, you know, really been completely explained. Um, there's the five million with FIFA, mm. which was kind of a remarkable kind of. Uh, piece of work uh, at a time that John Delaney was kind of going around criticising for Seth Blatter for, you know, mm. being too free and easy with the with the association's money. There's the run-of-the-mill stuff about the way John Delaney does his business with the grassroots clubs. Um, there's the fact that he was getting three grand a month in expenses and whatever else. We still don't know the full extent of John Delaney's expenses, mm. you know. So, so you know, he's 360 grand in salary, you know, 36 grand a year in rent specifically. What else does he get? You know, every time he, he drives down to Kerry to open, turn one of these sods, you know, on, or, or cut a ribbon on a, on a new pitch, mm. is he getting mileage for that? We don't know. What's the total? What is John Delaney actually costing the uh, Football Association of Ireland? We still don't know the answer to that. Let's have Eddie Murray in and answer some questions mm. because there's, there's plenty to put to him too. He won't answer that question though. I don't know. Will he not? I would be very surprised if he laid out the... He's not, they're, they're under no compulsion, as you say, to open the books and say, well, here's the breakdown. Well, they're, they're under no compulsion. But I mean, look, I, you know, I was writing a story recently about the about uh, the role of bookmaking sponsorship or something like that. I can't remember what it was about. But what it did involve was pouring over the accounts of Paddy Power for, for the year before last, uh, which I think were the, the most recently available ones. And there in forensic detail is every penny that every member of the board gets from Paddy Power Limited in salary, in bonuses, in share options, in pension contributions, you name it. Why on earth is the FAI with its 2.9 million, million in direct funding from the Exchequer plus countless other millions in pitch maintenance, in co-funded re- regional development officers by councils, in support for the game in schools, in you name it. The list goes on and on. Why on earth are they not being accounted for that? Let's have Eddie Murray say he's not going to account for it then. Let's, that would be a start. Let's have Eddie Murray say something. 
Yeah, probably, I mean, you know, nice. yeah. Like, what, Eddie Murray, uh, Donald Conway, Michael Cody, all these guys have been around for absolutely. years and years and years. Absolutely. And John Delaney, yeah. when the going gets tough, his first port of call is, I answer to the board. Well, let's hear from those guys because it's never been truer. And, and, and one of the things that's come out of this, right, we can argue, the, you know, the toss about whether... This, this arrangement with him becoming executive vice president seems to suit him completely. I have to say, on the night in Gibraltar, when they made the announcement, I sort of in my head rejected the idea that it was kind of, you know, uh, that the, the scale of cynicism was such that they were kind of setting him up with a, with, with a cushy mm. staging exit towards UEFA. Uh, and, I, and I did seize upon, and I, and I continue to see it as significant, the fact that he's no longer a member of the board. Because I think over time, they, they signed up in January to new governance procedures, which are broadly, though not in, entirely in line with what the Sports Council uh, recommends in terms of uh, tenure of, of board members. So what we are going to finally see, it seems, is a bit more change in the future in terms of membership of the board. So... And John Delaney's not going to be on that board, you know, day mm. in, day out. And so you would expect over a period of time, if nothing else changes, for his, his grip on the whole situation simple to loosen of, slightly, yeah, however simple, slightly. Simple yeah. coastal erosion. Exactly, Ooh, yeah. yeah. The, the extent of it, we, we don't really know. But, but, you know, but the bottom line is this, it's still now, as, as the, with the passing of time, with the, the timing of it was probably influenced by, you know, the impending story about what turned out to be the rent and they wanted to be seen to be doing something. But I'm now reasonably convinced that if that hadn't happened, we would have been called into a hotel function room sometime around now and this would all be presented as a hugely good news story that John Delaney was doing too much, as he has said to people, apparently, that mm. was, was, the, was the case, and that they commissioned this outside report and that this uh, outside report magically you know, recommended that the the position of CEO essentially be split and that he keep on doing the bits that he's really good at and that uh, he take a reduced salary and that, you know, mm. that, that this would be a massive improvement to uh, the governance of the association. With nobody outside of the association sees it that way. I mean, by and large, you know, even even the people who are kind of fairly neutral on the idea of the split role say that most in most instances where it's tried, the companies or the organisations revert to having a single CEO. And there's also the issue of the quality of the of the candidates you can attract for the actual CEO's job mm. when your predecessor yeah. still holds a chunk, many would say the better chunk of, of the role. So, you know, there seems to have been a real kind of cynicism there in terms of what, you know, this report, which nobody, certainly not the Sports Council, it seems, knew was even happening. And they just produced it to retrospectively justify something that actually they, John Delaney wanted to happen. Well, the know? timing of it did seem preposterous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so what, and their answer to that is they've commissioned another report. I mean, mm. there's, there's more than a touch of the Father Ted's, you know, milk float episode. Yes. Is there anything <laughs> to be said for another mass? Yeah. Um, it just rolls on, you know. Yeah. So there is an awful lot to, to, you know, to be delved into here about the governance of the association. And in many cases, I don't think John Delaney is the one well, who should be answering that, those questions. Yeah, now. and that will be a fascinating aspect. Sure. Answers. But that will be a fascinating aspect of it on, on Wednesday. If they start going, listen, that's all, you know, we can't say much because there's a report pending and you yeah. know, we have an, uh, Mazars are coming in to yeah. do another report. Sure. Like that will obviously, if that if that becomes their sort of state of position, then I, you can you can see the politicians well, fermenting and going, yeah. that's an insult to this absolutely. house and you, all you, you that You can kind of absolutely stuff. see that. Yeah. But there's two points. Okay, fine. Let's get John Delaney done on Wednesday then mm. and let's have the directors of the association back in the day after the Mazars report. Mm. But let me say this about the Mazars report, right? I mean, once again, the association 
has commissioned a report itself into its own work. It's now... Call me cynical, you know. I just explain to people the Mazars report is an investigation into yeah. So Mazars are an accountancy stroke consultancy firm. They've audited, as it happens, they're not without some expertise in in Irish border, some knowledge of it. They're the auditors of the GEA for the last fifteen or twenty years, beyond maybe maybe longer than that. I don't know, but certainly for quite some time. Um, but they have now been uh, brought in as outside consultants to look at the management structures of the FAI and and, and compile a report. So these are these are latest in a long line of reports which the FAI commission they pay for the board you know asks you know somebody to go away and come back with its views on the board now look I don't think in those situations you are very likely to get a situation where people write a report that says hey guys you are the problem you know because those people are going to be writing their check at the end of it this commi- this report should have been commissioned by the Department of Sport or by the Sports Council or the Sport, uh, Sport Ireland and the FAI should have thrown its doors open and cooperated with it fully, but it should not be going first and foremost to the FAI. It should be going to a third party and then we should all be able to see what's in that. Mm. Um, and and, and it's, it's a gigantic issue. I'm not saying, I'm not saying at this point that the board are the problem. I'm not saying that John Delaney is the problem. Let's have an independent assessment of that. But if it isn't really on the, realistically on the table that somebody's going to come back and say they are the problem, then that report is worthless, you know, and I, I won't be holding my breath for any, anything uh, revelatory in the Mazars report. Well, let us see. Let us go on Wednesday as uh, good people do and find out what they have to say and we will uh, talk about it again. You're listening to the Irish Times. And it is Masters Week, Pat. Very exciting. Most wonderful time of the year, except for all the other wonderful times of the year. Uh, Philip Reid is over in Augusta Forest. How are you, Philip? Hi, Maliki. Good morning. Good morning. Well, it's, it's very early morning where you are. Uh, we're we're fine here. Thank you for doing this. The grand. I was uh, driving down from uh, Atlanta Airport last night, and it's as you know, it's it's quite a boring road. So it's only when you hit Washington that uh, you see the first signs of. Uh, the spectators are all out outside the restaurants, outside Hooters Bar last night. John Daly's uh, big pull-up truck was there. They were queuing up for the autographs. So that really signals to me when you're arriving in on Sunday evening uh, the start of the Masters, to be honest. Uh, what are your thoughts uh, heading into the week, Philip? Where I always, the last few years I've looked at the, the Masters at the start of the week and um, maybe it's just a reflection of where golf is, but... Uh, it always looks like the certainly in the last three or four years the most open masters that you that you can remember. Like if you you could go down through the list and you would be well into the twenty or twenty or twenty fifth player before you can start ruling people out. That's right. I was, um, just just the nature of what's happened this year with just there being no dominant players. Like okay. Uh, Rory is playing fantastic golf. Matt Kuchar has been unbelievably consistent. Uh, Justin Thomas had a great early start, but seems to have gone slightly off the ball. And yet, there's, as you say, there's 20, 25 in the stretch around to 30 players that are coming here with saying, this could be my week to get the green jacket back on. And, uh, you know, could this be the year that we finally get one of those big upsets that we haven't had for quite a long time? Yeah, because funny enough, the the upsets over the last few years, like if you just purely take it on betting odds, you're still talking about guys, you know, that, you know, Sergio was a, a reasonable price, Patrick Reed was a reasonable price, but you got to go back, I'd say, to Charles Schwartzel 
uh, whichever year that was. Was that 2010? Like, he he, he was yeah, way, way, way down the field, yeah. Yeah, Charles Schwartzel actually uh, was the year that we all thought Rory was finally going to get mm. the job done. And probably before him, Trevor Immelman, another South African who was a uh, mm. good price when he won. So, okay, but the thing about the Masters is, you know, players who have won here, players who have played here, tend to play well every time they come back. It's just, it's just the nature of the beast. It's the place that players are coming back to every year. They know the course. Some are frightened by it, some are intimidated, and some absolutely just become a different player once to walk through those gates. We've seen it in the past. Bubba Watson, it doesn't matter what sort of form he has coming in, he's always going to play well. Same with Phil Mickelson. And even Jordan Speech, you know, given the problems he's had this year, you know, once he gets into Augusta National, he just plays so well here. So it, it, it is a wide open Masters, and it's great for golf. and even, even if you look at last night's winner, the Valero Texas Open, uh, Corey Connor is a Monday qualifier. Mm. He got the last ticket in. You know, it was quite extraordinary what he managed to do over the weekend. And, you know, it just adds all into the mix, you know, the property of, you know, you have the strong players and then you have outsiders. And then, of course, there's the Tiger factor. Let's talk about Tiger. <laughs> Go on, so Philip. Well, let's talk about Tiger. How, how do you see him, his form coming into this? Obviously, he had last weekend taken down Rory, which would probably help his spirits a little bit. Well, if you just take that one, that one week away, you know, I, I think it's uh, very interesting to look. He hasn't, he hasn't played as well as he seemed to have played towards the end of last year. He, got, he was certainly tired at the at the Ryder Cup, but you know, there seems to be a strategy in his play. You know, like there were weeks where. You know, he seemed to be laying back and playing longer irons in. And you've got to think, is that specifically with Augusta National in mind? Because he knows what type of shots he's going to have to be playing uh, once he gets to Augusta National. Are his eyes on this week, even when he was playing in tournaments that, okay, he wanted to win? But was there a second idea behind it, maybe a grand master plan that I'm playing this way because I'm teeing it up at Augusta National and, you know, can he finally get another major? He's 14 majors. He's been a lot. 2008 US Open since his last major. Back then, we all thought he was going to comfortably just uh, outpace Jack Nicklaus's record and move clear. Obviously, a lot of issues have happened since then. Injuries, his personal life. But there is a sense that coming here this week, yes, Tiger Woods is a big factor. And maybe Tiger Woods has his eye on another green jacket. Uh, let's take uh, our, our uh, interest, Philip. I, when we look at Rory, he has never... You'd have to imagine he hasn't come into the Masters in better form than he has this year. Like, you know, seven top ten finishes in seven tournaments this year is incredible golf from him. Um, there's no particular excuse for him not contending here. I... To be honest, Maliki, I've never seen Rory more comfortable in his own skin than he seems to be at the moment. His golf is fantastic. He's just he, he has a demeanour on the golf course. He has that little swagger, that strut, that mm. you know, it, it, it's the outward display of confidence. And ironically, as Pavel touched it on just recently there with the, the loss to Tiger Woods in the match play, that was the only little glitch that maybe little window of 
uh, frustration, nervousness, anxiety coming up to this quest to complete a career Grand Slam. He didn't talk to the media after he lost uh, the Tiger in the match play. And it was perhaps just the, the first time that we've seen a little bit of the old Rory. But to all intents and purposes, he seems to be in a really good place. It's a very tight favourite, I think, like 13 to 2. But then you would probably would have said that about Tiger Roll at the Grand National on uh, Saturday, you know. <laughs> so, you know, 13 to 2 is tight around here, given the type of field we have, the type of course. But and given the fact that he that, hasn't won it, Philip, given the, you know, like he has had it, he has, given the fact that he hasn't won it, it's a very tight, tight price. And the, the thing is, you know, this, this old cliche about, you know, uh, the green jacket is won in the final round, but it's won over the, the last nine holes. Mm. And Rory, since the, the blow-up and the meltdown started on the 10th hole, he hasn't really been in contention mm. on the back nine on a Sunday, you know, with, with a chance to win that uh, green jacket. That was so, the huge uh, disappointment about last year, Philip, you know, that, that he was in the final, he was playing Patrick Reed. He had that, uh, that putt for Eagle on the second. Uh, and missed it, and and it sort of ebbed away. He knew his fate very early in the final round last year. He couldn't even take it to the back nine. But well, well, that was that's very true. And I was out there in the crowds. Like the sense of expectancy last year was that this is Rory's again. He's he's the one who's going to put the pressure on Patrick Reed, and he missed that eagle putt, and all of the energy seemed to drain mm. out of him. And I thought at the time when he walked to the third tee and instead of going with the driver, which he'd done mm. in the previous three rounds, he went for safety with an iron and then missed a fairway. You know, like just the evidence from such an early stage was this is not going to be his year again. And it's, you know, Patrick Reid, in fairness to him, completed the job magnificently. And he's another player who has been in very poor form of late and once he gets here as, as a winner, you know, winners coming back here tend to just get a fresh pep in their step. They get a, a different mindset and they all tend to play well. So let's broaden it out, Philip. Who uh, who else are you looking at for the week? Uh, well, if you look back on how Justin Rose has been playing mm. and how he plays around here, you know, he's, he's a great record, actually, if you look back on being a first-round leader, like going back through the years, and, uh, you know, the number of uh, top five finishes even that he's had in the last last few years. He's, he's a player who likes Augusta National. His game is well suited to Augusta National and his temperament is well suited to Augusta National. And then the other big question mark has always been about Ricky Fowler. Can he win a major? And if you look at how he plays around here, he actually has a decent record without actually getting the job done. Mm. So uh, I think... Again, okay, they're quite tight. In if you're if you're a betting man looking at it, or if you're a golf fan looking at it, they, they are amongst the favourites again. But I think Justin Rose and possibly Ricky Fowler could be two of the men that you could be looking at come Sunday. Uh, and you had a uh, in your five to follow on uh, in the paper on Saturday. Your big outsider was uh, Justin Harding. You might uh, expand on that a wee bit. Well, Justin Harding is a guy, if you look at him, okay, he's a debutant in Augusta National, and you have to go back all the way to Fuzzy Zeller to find the last uh, player to win on, the, on his first time here. But just, just something about Justin Harding, okay, he is a long, uh, he's a long putter, which isn't always great, but uh, Adam Scott did get the job done too, doing, doing it that way. He's, he's a very, very good player. Like, he's won five times in, on different tours in the last year. 
he's worked his way up into the top 50 in the world. And when Rory played him in the match play, I think Rory didn't really know much about him, but he said afterwards he was so impressed with this guy's game. He's one of these South Africans who, you know, they, once they get onto the big stage, they're, they're unfazed, they don't show nerves. And I think he's around 250 to 1, or possibly even 300 in some markets. So given uh, the, the each way pool, I think it's up to 10 places on uh, some of the betting that, you know, he's probably worth a sneaky look. The other Irish interest, Philip, is um, Shane Lowry, of course. He's failed to make the cut too the three years that he's played in the Masters. Do you reckon he's a better chance this time around? Do, do you know the irony is that he, he just about missed a cut by, uh, by a shot in each occasion. One of, one of those, he was when he finished his second round and he was talking to us afterwards, it was all with the expectations that he was going to make the cut because the, uh, the wind was quite strong and he played very, very well. And it was almost within minutes of actually talking to him, the wind died completely. So the second, second the afternoon waiver players all benefited from better conditions. And he only missed out by one that year, which was a big disappointment. Uh, so, OK, he's missed a cut two out of three times. And he is coming in not with great form. Like, since Abu Dhabi, he's been very disappointing. But it's a small field. OK, it's a tighter cut. But... Augusta National is a place that potentially can suit Jane, given his really good uh, wedge play and a short game. And he's a putty streak. He's a streaky putter. If he gets the putting going, he can actually, if he makes the weekend, it's up to him then to try and kick on. The job for him is to make the weekend, is to survive the cut and then hopefully kick forward. But, you, you know, he's, what was he, first round leader or second after the first round just on his last time here. So, you know, he's come back to some good experiences. Well, I uh, I always say, Pat, if uh, if if you ever get a chance in your life to go to the Masters at Augusta, people should go. So I'm I'm very desperately jealous uh, of you over there, Philip. Uh, so I hope we work you to the bone all week and that you uh, don't enjoy a minute of it. Oh, thanks for that. That's <laughs> like saying to an actor, break a leg. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Philip. Listen, thanks a million to you. Uh, thanks a million to Emmett uh, Malone, who's in earlier talking to us about the FAI uh, thank you to you Pat thanks Mark cheers to Declan behind the glass and we will talk to everybody next week cheers folks <laughs>